Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast. It's Friday, the 4th of November, and we're here to answer your questions. Uh, this is another Alpha Bonus bonus um, in which we look at your questions and comments and criticisms over the past month um, and discuss them. Um, the, the, the first ones all seem to concern um, Phil um, and whether he's okay. Phil, are you okay? What can I say? I'm I'm deeply touched by the concern of our listeners. Mm. I think I'm okay, but, uh, you know, maybe they know better <laughs> than I That's for them to judge. <laughs> exactly. George? Um, I also think Phil is okay, um, give or take, and I am yeah. myself it okay. Sometimes it doesn't feel like you genuinely think that, George. No, I'm, I I mean, I, I know the signs to, to look for if uh, a fellow podcaster is, is having a, a tough time, if they're getting angrier on each subsequent appearance, <laughs> well. for example. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, Philip sounds quite chirpy today, so, um, so maybe it's not the best day even he's to explore a, this subject, but... He's um, got a ragu on the go. He's he's living the life. It's true. He's he's recording wearing uh, an apron, which is a, is a nice touch. I think it feels like you're really making stuff. You know, not just um, spewing well, into a mic. Is, is genuine. It's genuine work, right? <laughs> um, so the first question we're going to start with the last alpha bonus bonus um, in October. Alex McAuliffe asks: Is it a it it is a bit funny how much angrier Phil sounds on each subsequent appearance? Hope he's doing all right. Um, continuing on the Philip theme, uh, Kenneth Smith asks, and these are in reference to the episode we did on the death of Queen Elizabeth II, why is Phil so weird about the Queen? Like, I guess if you go by the kind of supposedly working class person who responds to polls asking their opinion on the Queen, I can buy those folks love her. But his assertion of supposed classism on the part of people who are sick of the pablum is ridiculous. Blake says on similar lines, Phil can't decide if he loves Cromwell more or the monarchy. And then Paul Brewer comes in uh, to defend Phil, saying, I don't find Phil at all weird about the late queen. I interpret Phil's position as there is no significant working class demand to abolish the monarchy. So we should build towards eventual abolition of, by advancing other working class demands in the meantime, until our success in those areas allows us to raise the question of the monarchy. Phil, does that uh, capture your position? Uh, somewhat. It's... um. It's more kind of a political assessment of the overall kind of uh, politics of the monarchy and the British state at the moment, which is to say that I don't think there would be any kind of um, that even with. So let me let me rephrase that. So it's not about kind of um, the weakness of uh, kind of working class politics or the organized labor movement means that any kind of pressure on the monarchy. Um, doesn't seem to me that it would lead anywhere good, right? Um, and also, it is not, you know, the main the main barrier to or the main kind of political challenge that we confront in Britain at the moment. Far from it. Um, and I think it does become kind of diversionary for a particular section of the of the middle classes. And it's not to say that there isn't a lot of um, pablum, as Kenneth Smith says in the press. Um, and, you know, quite a bit of it is, you know, kind of fairly nauseating as well. That's not I'm not disagreeing with that. But the um, I think the affection for the monarchy has to be, you know, kind of engaged with uh, kind of straightforwardly and honestly, rather than simply dismissed out of hand or derided. Um, and at the same time that there is among the kind, there is a distinctive, um, you know, curled lip, um, sneery kind of curled lip among some sections of the middle classes towards the fact that people like the monarchy. 
And rather than curling your lip, I think it's something to be, you know, understood. And if it's un- and it behooves, I think, Republicans in particular to try and understand affection for the monarchy rather than simply deriding it. Uh, I don't. I mean, my my experience in Britain was always that you know, yes, lefties might have you know um, this derision towards people um, liking for the monarchy, but that not kind of more broadly amongst the middle class. Um, but that's my impression. Well, I mean, among yeah, I mean, among you know the left leaning liberal middle classes, I suppose what struck me this time round, and this isn't by any you know, I mean, it's not a scientific sample or anything, but and I don't know, maybe George. You know, I don't know, I'd be curious to hear if George felt similarly, but it did seem to me there was more kind of um, contempt among the British middle classes for the pageantry. And I'm sure the majority of them, you know, kind of um, felt, you know, their hearts flutter and felt kind of mournful and the rest of it when they saw the hearse moving down the mile and all of that. Um, but I think there did seem to me to be more, you know, more than I would have anticipated and certainly more than there would have been maybe 10 or 20 years ago of um, feeling that this was backward and embarrassing for us to be putting on this kind of show for the rest of the world. And perhaps that feeling was accentuated by Brexit, you know, so it feels worse to them because we're now outside of the European Union. Yeah, I think you can contrast the 2012 Olympics with the death of the Queen in terms of there were there was less um, discomfort with the 2012 Olympics because the the, the British brand has been tarnished um, by Brexit to a certain extent. And I mean, I think um, James Hartfield made this this point really astutely that 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 kind of genuine feeling for the Queen is, in a weird way, genuine feeling precisely for the institutions of social democracy that are often counterposed to the institution of the monarchy. So you end up having this kind of situation where projected onto the queen was all the things which are sometimes uh seem to be her her kind of her kind of opposite so i think there is a there is something to be um unpacked there to a certain extent um but yeah i think phil you're like yeah i think there was a little bit i think it's partly because there was a a lot of coverage of the the queen's death and uh, not the queen sorry not the queen's death but the queen's funeral and all of the the pageantry there and some of it just was like objectively quite ridiculous seeing the cold uh, stream guards so the beef eater people take their hats off and do like hurrah 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 for the for the new king it's like yeah i mean you can kind of say, say whatever you like about this uh old woman and her service to the country and uh flags and all this but that just like yeah you've got to go quite a long way to you've got to um, be though you know so i mean mentioning the point about cromwell blake i can tell blake i do like cromwell more than the monarchy but the coldstream guards have a particular kind of um role in the story right because they were one of the elite forces that helped to take um take over scotland when scotland sided with king charles or the aspirant charles ii and were successfully they were crushed by Cromwell's army and crushed by the units that would eventually become the Coldstream Guards, who were led by General Monk, who also had a role in restoring the monarchy under Charles II eventually after Cromwell's death. So the Coldstream Guards have a very ambivalent relationship, being kind of stalwarts of both the Restoration and the Republic. Mm, wow, history guy over here. Yeah. Um, just quickly uh, on, on Cromwell, though, if uh, listeners haven't seen it, the the film with Richard Harris as as Cromwell is well well worth the watch and the uh the final scene is is particularly um good but i went i went went spoil it but well worth a watch 
Yeah, I mean, it's slightly tangential here, but um, drawing on a very different experience and stuff that I've been discussing about Brazil, about um, the politics of transcendence, uh, stuff that we discussed on the uh, last Bunga Zone, which we did uh, with Miguel Lago, um, and all these efforts for to kind of symbolize the people, these kind of populist attempts, whether it's you know the Bolsonaro version, which is exclusionary, or the Lulista one, which is more inclusionary, and so on. Um, and the desire for something beyond um, somehow the mundanity, the mundane struggles of life um, did put me, did, did kind of um, put me in a mind to think of how the queen is viewed, because there is there the, the kind of symbolic representation of the nation in a time in which all you're left with is kind of disaggregated consumer tedium and, you know, struggles in life, right? Um, I guess we could say we're all struggling consumers today, Um and uh, and and so something which is offers some notion of transcendence and answers the question which Benedict Anderson posed in in imagined communities of why are we here now and that the nation and uh, nationalism seeks to answer that um, you know that that's an, a, a question that goes wanting now I'm like I'm not a nationalist I'm not um, interested in kind of rebuilding the nation as a kind of self enclosed unit or anything like that um, but. You know, perhaps uh, uh, the better way to phrase is where are we going and who is the we here? Um, and that's a question which isn't uh, very much answered. And maybe the queen, for all the terrible limitations of monarchy and how backwards it is, um, does does do that because it's cross-generational. It points to the past and into the future. Um, and of course, it's continuity. So it's it's a deeply conservative conception of that. And most many conceptions of the nation are um, conservative and certainly one's like in a country like Britain or the old imperial powers, it, it certainly would be. So I'm not backing that, but um, it did gain me some sort of appreciation for, I guess, what the queen represented in the absence of of any kind of other alternative, um, providing some sort of transcendental notion of, of, uh, so of the who Brazilian, we are. So the Brazilian empire to defend you, restore the Brazilian empire to defend you from Bolsonaro. <laughs> nah, that's a leap. I don't even know how we got there. No. Um <laughs> But but anyway, no, you know, I was just I was now I mean, I, I'm joking. I was just I was always I when I was reading about Brazil on route to Brazil back in um, back in 2020, I couldn't I, I found the whole thing about the Brazilian Empire and the monod Brazilian monarchy, like kind of an endlessly intriguing uh, kind of uh, alleyway, I suppose, in Brazilian history. So I actually, I, speaking about the monarchy, you know, I saw a piece in the Spectator today, the British Spectator, um, about Germany and about the German far right. Support for the return of the support for the return of the German monarchy is, uh, or the Prussian monarchy specifically, is at like one out of ten across the country. Um, but it is, it rises to one Seriously? out of five. Yeah, it rises to one out of five uh, among uh, eighteen to twenty fours. You know, yeah, I saw that poll as well. That's crazy. Which is, I mean, uh, which which is amazing. I mean, yeah. that is really strange. Um, so, you know, that's well, very if, much going backwards into the future. Um, it's, I mean, is this a chance for the, for the, the Hanoverians, uh, the monarchy of our country to kind of have some kind of crossover event with the monarchy of, <laughs> of Prussia? It's what history has been leading to a kind of Eng England, Germany union of some sort, perhaps. I don't know. Prospect, I, I'm I'm yeah. I'm flabbergasted by that. What what ex, like what what explains this um, uh, monarchist feeling in probably similar people? disgust. I mean, probably disgust with um, with the kind of grand coalition Merkel era technocratic politics, the inability to um, 
you know, I suppose, I mean, what's the question? How do you express German political identity weighted, freighted down with kind of fascism um, and the experience of Nazism and post-war occupation and what have you? And maybe the way to do it is to leap back, you know, you leap back to, um, yeah, to that's the Hohenzollerns and the German Empire. Yeah, forget all the yeah, forget and forget all the guilt imposed, and forget the the bad stuff, and and yeah, press press reset get on back Germany. To the good, get back to the good times, <laughs> yeah. which led, which eventually led to the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Uh, keeping with Europe, though, um, Elias Braun, uh, a comment on Italy: uh, the existing forces are indeed all integrated into the EU system, but I'm not sure that means that a sovereigntist movement would disintegrate the Italian political system. The fact that many movements are have arisen trying to do that but failed miserably suggests to me that there are structural factors, elite cohesion, economic dependence, the euro, the Italian constitution, which make it much more difficult to achieve an Ital exit, an Italian exit from uh, the EU, than it was to achieve Brexit. The Italian political system, despite its constant chaos and seeming fragility, is much more resilient than it seems. Same goes for much of the rest of the EU. I think the differences between continental EU states and the UK, especially membership of the Eurozone, mean that the political space for a Brexit-like movement is much narrower there than in the UK. This is reflected in anti-EU currents being much weaker, and those that do exist always being too afraid of really implementing what the rhetoric implies. Yeah, I think this I mean, is. I think Elias is point. absolutely right. Yeah. However, you know the very um, in making their case. Right. Um, it demonstrates the point, right, that it would actually disintegrate the Italian political system. So in suggesting all this stuff about um, just how tightly interwoven the Italian state is with the European Union um, and not to mention the Eurozone, that it would require leaving those structures would, I mean, be a revolutionary situation than Brexit would have been. Um, so, you know, that I think is... Um, you know, the point I think uh, the point is made in trying to Elias makes the point against himself. I think it's also worth just the, the really consistent emphasizing again, the really consistent pattern of all of the kind of right wing um, populist Eurosceptic uh, kind of parties. As soon as they've got into power, that kind of Euroscepticism has, has really fallen away. It happened with Maloney. Um, maybe it happened earlier, you know, getting into power happened with Salvini it happened with the Sweden Democrats recently um it's there is a there is continues to be a, a gap there because those um <clears throat> those kind of movements can't really grasp the nestle of of sovereignty precisely because it would be so um uh disintegrative and I think brexit you know maybe the point to make is brexit did disintegrate the British political system but you know it's disintegrated. <laughs> you know sort of so what uh you can have a disintegrated political system that in the absence of anything else actually still well to the extent that that it does it does run um you know we've, we we've we've definitely got a, <clears throat> a kind of political system at the moment that seems to give a lot of people the opportunity to be prime minister which is a great a great thing you know you, you <laughs> want to have as many as many opportunities that, as that's possible. just becoming like italy that you know that <laughs> that's just britain yeah, being behind italy's been there for ages ago it's not through coalitions, though. It's just through the nominal governing party, just like completely destroying itself continually. But no, I think, um, yeah, I think actually Phil's Phil's point was it was a good one. Um, yeah, it just points to how disintegrative it would be. 
Yeah, I mean, just on the 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 kind of absence of any programmatic content for you know right wing populists. I was discussing this with um, uh, on the counter cast, uh, counter radio, I think as it is now, um, with David Jameson, and uh, who's always always good value. And I, I was talking to him about Brazil actually, but we ended up talking about Meloni's Italy, um, as you do, um, and about you know the kind of similarities or otherwise between you know of these kind of right new right wing, you know, even far right movements who ultimately are just neoliberal. They're stuck within neoliberalism. They have to default to culture wars as a way of providing any kind of reason for why they should be governing and setting up, you know, kind of wokeness as the as this kind of totally domineering ideology, which explains all the ills of the country and which uh, and, and they can't break past that. And it's it is amazing just how much that repeats itself um, around the world and how much of like a dead end that politics um, continually is. Um, anyway, I don't have anything to add to that. Um, staying also with Europe, but now turning to uh, Ukraine because this is a continuation of Elias's comment, but uh, we have a couple on, on Ukraine. I think Phil's positions on supporting Ukrainian sovereignty slash opposing a proxy war are coherent theoretically. But in my opinion, the question this avoids is, what would you what would that have led to? It's quite plausible to say that the Russians would have taken Kiev. In any case, they would have advanced much more. I'm sympathetic to Phil's position theoretically, but can't reconcile myself with the consequences, even taking into account NATO or the US's role in provoking the war. Um, so, you know, basically what, you know, what does it mean to defend Ukrainian sovereignty? Does that just mean not supporting Ukraine or does it mean supporting, continuing the proxy war? You know, what does that mean in practice? So, I mean, I think there are two things, I would, at least in my kind of view, two things would flow from it. Um, that the Ukrainian political elite should have been far more sensitive to um, to the alienation of a Russian-speaking minority in Ukraine, particularly in eastern Ukraine. And after the um, you know after the uprising that overthrew Viktor Yanukovych in the Euromaidan uprising, um, you know they um, that the regime you know or the government subsequently was uh, deliberately kind of um, you know antagonized. Russian speakers within Ukraine and refused to countenance the idea of um, a more federalized Ukraine or more autonomy for Eastern oblasts and what have you, as well as uh, the cultural provocations anyway, giving, you know, this is the this kind of politics um, unnecessarily alienated Ukrainian citizens and gave the opening for Vladimir Putin's intervention in 2014. So as a, you know, to make uh, Ukraine coherent as a as an independent nation, and to defend Ukrainian sovereignty does require integrating Ukraine, but through some kind of federal system or through some kind of system that builds in, um, you know, uh, the consent of uh, the eastern oblasts to to the center to Kiev, and this was you know part of the certain institutions or part of the Minsk two agreements that were shut down subsequently, um, and the you know the peace agreements that failed to take hold before the Russian invasion. At this point, I think um, the defense of Ukrainian sovereignty would have to require some sense of in political independence from the West, right? Not only by virtue of being able to, um, as part of um, reconciling with uh, Russian-speaking minorities in Ukraine, but also by way of um, ensuring any future government long after Putin is gone in Russia that it wouldn't be um, that it wouldn't be a threat to Russia, 
And so offering the possibility of rapprochement and reconciliation rather than some kind of um, permanent hostility or essentially a forever war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, and an ind- that would, re- you know, an independent foreign policy that isn't aligned to the West and also independent of Moscow. So it seems to me a policy of non-alignment would be a way to um, carve out a path out of the impasse that Ukraine is at the moment. And as far as, you know, um, as far as the weapons, you know, dependence on the West is concerned, I mean, that is a more difficult part of the question. You know, how do you how do you get independence of your weapon suppliers, political independence? How do you um, fight a war which isn't kind of decided by um, planners in Brussels, but by the requirements of an independent Ukraine? And I think, I mean, in terms of military strategy, it would probably entail shifting much more to a guerrilla war behind enemy lines um, rather than kind of conducting offensives um, that happen to fit agendas in Washington and Brussels. Interesting. I Yeah. But one more point quickly on Ukraine. Vulcan says uh, Zelensky is obviously a Fukuyamist operative and not a patriotic Ukrainian. Um, yeah. George, are, are you a, a, a patriotic Ukrainian and not a Fukuyamist? I think the question is raised. As I don't think anybody thought rule. he was a patriotic Ukrainian. Um, <laughs> you may or may not, if you were walking, not so much anymore, but walking through London at one point, you might think there were a lot of patriotic Ukrainians from the number of um, Ukraine flags, potentially. But no, I guess the question more pertinent to the three of us is whether we're Fukuyamist operatives or not. And uh, if, if we are, whether we whether we know it or not. But I think there is something there about... Maybe we're Vulcan. the last true Fukuyamians, in fact. <laughs> More Fukuyamian than Fukuyama himself. Like um, like Marx needed to radicalize Hegel, we similarly radicalize um, <laughs> our man Francis potentially. However, yeah, no, I think there's something grand, about but... there is something about like is that is Zelensky Zelensky actually a patriotic Ukrainian? Well, you could say actually the course that he seems to be taking is is much, one which is much more interested in advancing his own position and garnering media attention of various sorts than Ukrainian national interest. And I think that's, you know, links to Phil's kind of, uh, to a certain extent, Phil's previous comment about, you know, what are the principles actually running practical IR, international relations these days, like straightforward considerations of what's in this state's interest or that state's interest don't often come come into it. So uh, the you're left with a f- um, free-floating kind of actors which can be determined more by individuals who um may or may not be fukuyama's operatives and i'm talking about zelensky there not not three of us um okay uh let's move on um two more questions still from the last alpha bonus bonus um the first on fascism so richard r says the disaster had already happened before fascism emerged in Europe. The stakes seem to be measured wrongly here, and I think this is in reference to some discussion about the far right. And I don't, I, I'm, I can't recall exactly what it was, but um, anyway, the comment there's enough there to to discuss. Uh, migrants are being killed and caged under liberals. Left wing leaders in the U.S. are in line with imperialism. Um, so you know, given this situation, uh. Richard R. continues saying, I would say that neurotically avoiding calling anything but fist fights in the beer halls of Bavaria fascism is more or less accomplishing the same task as calling everything to the right of Joe Biden fascism. It avoids the problem of analyzing actually existing conditions. Yeah, okay, we need language to talk about different analyses and their attendant ideologies, but it's easy. What simply what do they call themselves? 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I've uh, been talking about also and considering, you know, what all, what to call the new right, the new far right, um, because it's not just a question of terminology, you know, as Richard R is getting at, we also have to understand it, not just by what it is or what it maybe dreams of, but what it actually does. Now, as we were just saying before, what it actually does often is get into power at the most, you know, uh, kind of take the edges off democracy as much as possible, right? And and kind of undermine democracy even further from within. And, um, it, you know, stimulate these kind of culture wars as in the absence of actually any program. Now, I think fascism was always pretty opportunist too. Um, but, you know, dictatorship was obviously the main the main aim and making the party the state. And anyway, but all this stuff is is pretty absent from, um, from the current far right. And yet, uh, you know, I think the thing that we have to deal with is how does this force emerge as a kind of, as a genuine force in, in European and, and global politics in various different countries where the traditional task of fascism of of crushing the left and crushing the workers movement isn't actually there um you know so where the easy answer the easy kind of bunga answer is to say well it's just another symptom of the collapse of neoliberalism and the end of the end of history okay but at what point do we have to start talking about it as an actual positive political force and trying to understand what it actually is in very much 21st century terms, not by uh, relying on the 20th century to somehow be a guide. I don't think, I mean, look, I don't think I'd say to Richard Aritz, I don't think it was neurotic. You know, we're trying, you're trying, we were trying to be specific. Um, And there, you know, the differences seem to me, you know, that they are significant. So it's not like the only bad thing, um, you know, I mean, there are fascists past the kind of Bavarian beer halls of the 20s and 30s, obviously. Um, but in the post-war period, it's very difficult to identify fascism as um, on the same kind of significant uh, level of threat, you know. Um, and it's striking. I mean, you know, so one thing that is an important difference, and this is within between Bolsonaro and um, say, right-wing populists in Europe, that, you know, in Europe, um, they've all kind of conceded to the European Union, but also that they have generally tried to cast themselves as democratic insurgents against the technocratic status quo, against a kind of centrist kidnap of um, of the political system. Um, so to that extent, they align themselves with the masses and with democracy um, in a way that was totally different to interwar fascists who kind of um, obviously aimed for popularity, but openly derided and democked, uh, sorry, openly derided and mocked the idea of democracy and multi-party political competition as a meaningful way to resolve political differences. And that's, you know, that is a significant difference. George. Yeah, I mean, a slightly sort of different response. I think there is, um, I don't know if this comment was actually directed at me, but neurotically, I'm assuming <laughs> that it that it was. And actually like, <clears throat> There is something to this idea of like, oh yeah, you can't like I, I'm I'm endeavouring to stop using the using the phrases PMC and there's no fascism because there's no organised working class because I think both of those two things are like not as helpful as maybe thinking things through a bit more and actually what I was reflecting on as you know <clears throat> as you guys were talking there a little bit is there's a you know there's this book on the rise of the right in the English context by Steve Hall for former Bunga guests Simon Winlow and James Treadwell which kind of talks about like yeah how do how do people see their own drift to the right what what are the 
terms particularly betrayal in this in this context what what do they mean but actually i haven't really read that much about i've read a lot of <laughs> people saying that this is all that is fascism and i thought oh this is this is bollocks but you know um but i haven't actually read anything which has said yeah here is an actually an account of the rise of um this or that in that or in this or that european context of this um right or far right movement and what are the terms that they understand themselves through and I think that could actually be pretty interesting to to have a look at because I'm sure it would get pretty quickly past um, the fascism, no fascism uh, deadlock. Um, but no, I think it's a fair it's a fair point that you can just as easily <laughs> um, uh, disavow a word by not using it as by overusing it or something like that. There's some kind of psychological process in there that Richard R is uh, uh, gesturing towards. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just one more point on this. The the question of democracy, I, I think there is a difference between what is going on with, with the kind of populist right in uh, Western Europe, especially, and in the kind of semi-periphery of, of global capitalism. I think that's an important distinction to make. because Although the similarities are often striking in terms of, you know, use of social media and, and things like this, um, and some of the discursive aspects, I think they're a little bit, I think they're a little bit different just because of their position in, in, in world capitalism. The Things like Le Pen have a kind of democratizing thrust to them uh, in the way that I don't think Bolsonaro does. You know, I mean, he does talk in, in of a real democracy, but he's pretty explicit that he wants to go back to a military dictatorship. Um, but there is something really perplexing, you know, it, it kind of cuts across um, in various different ways. So just today, for example, I saw in, in Brazil um, uh, a call for by by some group called like the Civil National Resistance Movement or something, uh, calling for a general strike, right? Calling for a general strike, close down your businesses, factories, offices, da-da-da-da-da, um, to uh, effectively stop the, the, the stealing of the election. But they were doing that, appealing to the military to intervene to effectively carry out a military coup um so it's really bizarre right um it it's hard it, to read that as anything but the end of the end of history right i mean it's so kind of confused so disconnected to um you know politics that would have been understood that would have been understood in left and meaningful left and right terms in the 20th century you know like as well as responding to the collapse of kind of um liberal technocratic globalist centrism however when you call it i mean it's so so bizarre and i think that could only be the end of the end of history yeah yeah i mean that's that you know at, at, in, at the moment you still have to kind of go yeah it's just monsters of the interregnum right um but i wonder uh, if um a, an appeal like a randian like um a, appeal for a general strike of capitalists i wonder how that would would work any well i mean I, in, I, in this case i think a lot of the people they were appealing to were small and medium business owners so when they say do a general yeah. strike and close your business they mean close your business <laughs> yeah. yeah but that's not I mean, randian because for the randian it's the great kind of you know the promethean entrep entrepreneurs and oligarchs not the um not the little kind of you know or even even the well-to-do kind of uh small business or medium business owner but i think the randian thing has already happened right i mean if you look at like um kind of just how poor rates of business investment are in the forces of production. I think we've been living through the last 20 years is something like a Randian kind of capital strike, except that I... um, they've made a huge amount of money and they're all deeply kind of mediocre, unimaginative individuals mm. who are doing it. Yeah. 
I don't think it's a capital strike. I think it's more of a quiet quitting, a great resignation of um, of capitalists. I actually haven't read The Fountainhead. I've listened to the first half of Atlas you know, Shrugged. You're, you're not missing a, anything. As an audio no, book. The Fountainhead, is, the Fountainhead is okay. It's Atlas okay. Shrugged that's fucking terrible. All I remember is that like, if somebody was described as having bad posture or dead eyes, they would be inevitably sooner or later revealed as a, as a socialist or a lefty. So you've got to watch out, <laughs> listeners, for people with bad posture. Uh, they're the ones to watch that, out for. That's kind of fair enough, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I would definitely defend the, you know, the good posture left. You know, that's my politics, ultimately. As I, I say, as I straighten myself up in my chair. Um, one last question from this uh, last alpha bonus bonus. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party says Eli, is caught in a bit of a trap that Marxist-Leninist states tend to run into, which is why they can't offer a quote-unquote Chinese dream or a communist vision of freedom. The traditional Marxist vision of freedom is free time, the realm of freedom outside of daily labor of reproducing yourself in your society. But your traditional Leninist state pretty much views unapproved, non-conforming civil society activities as imperialist threats, almost by definition. You wind up with a vision of freedom in which the growth in the forces of production generates more and more leisure time that can then be spent conforming to the party state's vision of the good life and is otherwise considered a threat to society, a contradiction within the communist program. So eventually, you either require the new communist man to be a pathological altruist whose primary goal in life is to uphold the communist society of the communist party, or as most Marxist-Leninist parties eventually do, you switch from offering a vision of freedom to a vision of ethical living and virtue. A couple of points on this. Um, firstly, the, the idea of altruism comes from Comte. I didn't know this. Not the cheese, but the um, French social scientist who also gives uh, Brazil the motto Comte. on its no, Comte. Comte. Comte, you Philistine, Comte. not Comte. Um, both um, uh, the cheese and the book are, are best appreciated with a with a little bit of chutney and a and a biscuit um but more seriously i think this idea that the traditional marxist vision of free time i just i'm not sure that it i, I think this has been in this kind of it's become the common sense but i think it's been influenced overly by um postone and, and all those readings of like trying to quantify something which is qualitative about freedom. And I think the discussion that we had with Alex Gurevich was was I think pretty good on this that it's it's not just free time. There is an a, an element of control which which is li links onto the other thing that Eli was saying which is about how you you know how are you are you taking decisions over collectively over how you're allocating labor and what you're doing with the time not just this idea that you have more free time therefore you have more freedom. Um so I just I'm just not I'm just not completely I know I'm not giving a very convincing uh response to to that particular point but I just feel like it's I'm hearing it more and more and it's not what I kind of thought the traditional Marxist understanding of freedom exactly was so I'm I'm just expressing an unease and I'll try and uh, back that up with some actual thoughts in future episodes Phil I think I mean I would differ slightly because I think I mean the it's not a the communist vision of freedom is um you know kind of um at a qualitatively different higher level of um of society and life right so um and i i suppose i mean the issue is like you know that classical distinction between the socialist 
society of the future and the communist society of the future past that. And I'd qualify or I'd disagree or take issue. I mean, I think Eli's comment is actually genuinely kind of fascinating as the kind of um, trap that certain kind of 20th century modernizing state ended up in. Um, but I wouldn't call it kind of, I wouldn't say they were a, it's a Leninist state, but rather see it as a, um, you know, I mean, essentially a Stalinist state. The Leninist state was about being, um, wasn't aimed around industrialization, but about orienting around the, you know, was very clear. I mean, Lenin was always very clear about the dependence of the early Soviet state on revolution in Western Europe. Um, in the advanced capitalist countries, whereas the Stalinist state was more about developing the forces of production. And the minute that you end up in a model which is oriented around developing the forces of production, which is where, you know, I, I mean, I gather the CCP is still essentially trapped in that kind of dynamic. Then you're, um, you know, all of these other questions, I think, about what the traditional Marxist vision of freedom might be or could be is they're all redundant because Marxism wasn't about developing the forces of production. Um, it was about reconciling the relations of production with the forces of production, not expanding the forces of production to get there, but rather the forces of production, you know, the future society is built from that um, initial reconciliation that leads to socialism. So as well as, you know, that it would all happen in society, in developed liberal societies, right, rather than in kind of rural, backward authoritarian ones. So I think the contradictions are within, I would say, within Stalinism, rather than intrinsic to the classical Marxian vision. Okay, so we're going to move on to um, some of the more uh, other episodes. Um, I was going to say normal episodes, but you know, episodes about things that are other than our own comments. Uh, anyway, uh, 296, Last Gasp Neoliberalism, our episode on trustonomics, which I think came out the day that uh, trust was gotten rid of. So, you know, <laughs> uh, very topical and uh, right on time as usual, Bungacast. Andrew Mountford says, are the markets actually reacting against corporate tax cuts? It seems to me more like they are responding to promises of expanding of expanded borrowing from Truss's agenda, with Hunt in charge doing everything he can to show the conservatives are back to quote-unquote sensible economic management behind the markets, including him paring back the intervention on energy. Isn't this just neoliberalism resplendent? It's not like neoliberalism in and of itself ever wanted to, the government to cut to zero taxes. Under Thatcher, the tax burden was shifted in favor of capital and the wealthiest in society, but it was never destroyed. Uh, shifted away from, I assume. Um, I'm not sure this is really the death of neoliberalism, tragically. So I think the, I mean, I agree. I mean, I basically, I think it is the end of, it's the end of the political authority, right? Of um, that, the, you know, they're trapped in a situation where they're constantly very visibly using the state in order to enforce certain kinds of market decisions. And I think that kind of visibility of the state rather than the state kind of the state in advance and the state expanding, not least in terms of its, um, you know, kind of uh, financial commitments, that seems to me that political role of the state and the contradictions in which it's been banned up shatters the authority of neoliberalism. It's not to say that we don't have kind of, um, you know, that the people in charge aren't still kind of would-be neoliberals or aspirant neoliberals or that, they're, I think all the ideas they have are essentially neoliberal ideas, um, but that it's 
evocative kind of ideological allure and sheen, all of that has been peeled off. And I agree with Andrew Manford that what the markets were responding to, you know, what they were kind of really had their eye on was the fact that you had this kind of this burden, you know, the, all the borrowing that they were so concerned about. That is true, right? But nonetheless, um, in that response, you know, they um, they were concerned about corporate tax cuts, right? I mean, that was part of their response was um, the corporate tax cuts would be, make it more difficult for the UK to repay. And so you had this extraordinary, um, you know, this extraordinary kind of... Um, uh, position, whereas, you know, someone said on Twitter, uh, you know, the neoliberal government of trust or the kind of neoliberal kind of revanchist government of trust believed in the market, but the market didn't believe in her. So all of that seems to me to continue to point to the fact that it, neoliberalism as a political, as an organizing political paradigm is still imploding. <laughs> Okay, so moving on, episodes 298 and 299, Working for Freedom with Alex Gurevich. This was a popular episode. Um, just a couple of comments. Eli um, quotes us uh, or quotes Alex Gurevich saying, you can't automate automation. Uh, Eli replies, I mean, you absolutely can. It's just that it's tech bro dream stuff rather than socialist activist dream stuff. Um, Richard I'm not R. Sure. I'm, not, I'm not sure that I don't. So, I mean, this confused me a bit. I don't know if you guys have a different view on it. But the, I think Alex was saying, like, you know, um, that automating automation involves a kind of decision making that isn't automatic. Right. I mean, isn't that what he was getting at? I guess there has, it has to be an there has to be an originating decision that you can't that you can't automate. I mean, sure. And that that's and that's but, that's irreducible. Yeah. But that's a, that's at the kind of initial stage at a certain point. The idea is that automation um you know that artificial intelligences create new um automations and you know the, the machine works by itself creating new machines right um, so that i guess but, I but guess so let me just continue let me just continue because then you take it up richard r said um automation of automation is already happening it's just pernicious and awful and stupid it requires political oversight to not just be outright terrible i'm referring here to algorithms spitting out programs daily that used to take programmers for months used to take programmers months to do but isn't that just automation? Like if automation is reducing the work to go from a decision to the labor enacting that decision in the world, then you can't automate or you can kind of automate automation within that limit, but you can't get, you can't get kind of beyond it to, um, to take away the, 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 the starting point. You can just get more and more efficient in, in the means, um, I think that was sort of what Alex was 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 saying, if I if I understood him correctly. Well, I mean, we're gonna have to maybe park this because we're gonna be coming back to the question of automation and artificial intelligence specifically in the next reading club, which is another edition within the um, techno feudalism um, section, and uh, looking specifically at the I guess the techno part of the of the feudalism. Um, so anyway, that'll be out at the end of November, beginning of December. Um, and if you're not a member of the reading club yet, um, you know that's something uh, to look forward to. Uh, if you want to sign up for that. Um, and again, maybe I'll just do a shout out here. Um, if you're interested in the reading club, but maybe what you what we did this year hasn't been for you or whatever, and you want to say, hey, actually, why don't you just do, you know, a couple of big books and read those or say, 
you know, actually be much more interesting to explore several themes or just one theme or anyway, if you have ideas, um, shout us out because um, we're going to be at the at our end of year uh, big bunga meeting. We're going to be discussing what to do next year. So um, we're happy to have uh, your ideas and thoughts on this. Um, just two more points quickly on um, the Alex Gurevich episode. Um I especially appreciate Gurevich problematizing efficiency. Would love to hear more discussions that take seriously problems related to consumption, luxury, and waste. And Dshams underscore says, I wish you guys would do a proper episode on the rise of the logistics industry and the potential of powers in that sector sooner or later. I could be wrong, but I believe Amazon recently overtook Walmart as a leading employer in the U.S., I think this warrants some serious discussion, especially as, especially as it challenges the notion that workers in developed, developed capitalist countries have become predominantly PMC-ified office workers. Yeah, very good. Um, I think we should, should definitely of, do that. A couple of quick points good on points, this. No, yeah. I think it is, um, if that is true about um, Amazon overtaking um, Walmart, it would be good to kind of... Um, not go back to but like have a a counter episode to one that we did in january 2019 uber mention of capital part three which had uh lee phillips and michael Wazorski on to talk about the people's republic of walmart which wasn't really about it was kind of about logistics but it was more about planning and i think it was a really good episode and it was good to to see to see them in in london after after that and give them uh t-shirts as they launch the book but that would be a good like um from walmart to amazon and uh, we could kind of go into some of their logistics because that episode was more um on you know could could we democratize walmart and could we take those technological planning tools and make them more socialist and in terms of like gorovich problematizing efficiency it just made me think of um of weber and all this talk about rationalization and how you know the more and more efficient things try to get the more they under undermine um themselves and this this is one of the dialectics of uh, of reason in society i mean he obviously didn't take that that route precisely um but there's a rich tradition of social theory in this uh yeah in this, no, I, in this I, area it's a good it's a good point about efficiency actually it's something that interestingly the kind of green left has been very dismissive obviously traditionally of, of efficiency right seeing it as just you know capitalist rationalization and that actually we should focus on the good life and uh, degrow and and whatever and that efficiency isn't isn't important i remember Al, um alex kalinikos um the um trotskyist theorist saying that uh you know arguing that in in a, in a kind of response to the anti-globalization move this um uh, Trotskyist theorist movement. and your your supervisor. He was your my, my, tutor, my, wasn't my, he? he was indeed. Yeah, um, arguing against the anti globalization movement's more hippieish element, saying no, actually efficiency is a a socialist. Um, I don't know about socialist virtue, but it's something that should be should be valued. Still, it shouldn't be thrown out. You know, politics should be a value, not politics alone, but kind of political economy, the the structure of production should be evaluated on on the question of efficiency too. And it's true. I don't think we should dis- dismiss it, but I think the um, veto power that efficiency that the claim of efficiency has over all other questions then really is becomes problematic. Um, you know, as, as but that's the of, you know that's that's the the argument in in capital is that like. You know, production is in is irrational under capitalism. Like we can make it rational, and that we is, can make I think, it, yeah. is, and I think that is, you know, whether that's fully efficient or not, maybe it tends towards that. Maybe it kind of explores some of those contradictions within efficiency. Like that is a massive. Like you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you if you're saying that like efficiency and and rational approach to production, um, you turn away from that and you just kind of um just looking for the good life elsewhere. That's you know that's the the key thing. 
um, of you know of the socialist well, tradition. Yeah, it's, uh, replace it's, replace it's bad work. bad capitalist efficiencies. Excuse me, replace bad capitalist inefficiencies with good communist inefficiencies. Right, inefficiencies which are you know valuable for for freedom rather than the inefficiencies we have now, which are just kind of redundant production, for example. Right. Yeah. No, I think. Um, yeah, I I don't remember exactly what what um, Alex. One of the Alex G's, the Alex Gorovich in this in this case, um, was saying, but maybe more on, more on Amazon and their particular uh, brand of efficiency to come at some point in an yeah. episode. Um, so last episode, uh, episode three hundred. Cue cheers. I'll I'll stick those in in post production. Some cheers. Mm. Okay. Um, <laughs> thanks, George. Um, there's a comment uh, on Bunga at the end of the world about nuclear annihilation. Uh, glad to see you're not totally aloof from the pervasive sense of doom that seems to have enveloped the West. Funny that it took the brink of nuclear war to get you there, but now I invite you to join the apocalypse party. Seriously, though, Alex is really right that it's necessary to break with this now normative doomer doomerism. What I'm wondering is, short of some kind of spiritual revolution, is there a way to embrace both the reality of the world's fragilities and also reject the anxious, desperate, scraping affect that seems to totally saturate the movements that place such universals front and center? Yeah, good good point. I think the d doomerism is um, yeah, good, a, a good way to frame it. The, the massive pessimism and ca catastrophism that are just, you know, um, but pervasive it, it's a real i think it's particularly for young people and i'm not blaming like the young people themselves i'm blaming all of us who um bear responsibility for socializing the next generation like the um anxiety around more climate like change it's you know it's very it's very real and it reflects back what you know their their parents the older generations are saying that like we're in a situation where we'll be lucky to kind of get out of all of this alive. I think even the new statesman, when they have like the, one of these portraits of um, like all these questions, like how is, uh, what's your favorite album and all this sort of stuff. The question they finish with is like, are we all doomed? It's like, okay, that seems that if that's an acceptable sort of question to ask kind of for a pen pick of, of somebody, um in the news then you know maybe it does actually illustrate that people have have got doom on the mind and, and, it, and it and it and it and it and it uh, serves to obscure how bad things are in the here and now and also it's particularly how terrible they are um relative to the hopes of the past you know and i think that's something to remember that it's not like things are kind of crummy but they're going to be really really bad it's like no, you know, the, <laughs> we, the today's situation is, is kind of ridiculous from the perspective of, of what might have been and, um, you know. Yeah. One last question. Uh, Plecha Zunga says, maybe this is exactly the thought that inspired the episode, but nuclear war is one of the master signifiers of the end of history and of the Anglo-American regime of world governance. In an early 20th century work by H.G. Wells called The World Set Free, which predates real atomic weapons by 20 years, the invention of nuclear weapons and their initial use is the event that precipitates the creation of a world government. All conflict from that point on is between the enlightened world government and interior exile islands that continue to cling irrationally to local sovereignty and or values opposed to those of the cosmopolitan virtual elite. 
And this is really how things have played out. The US and its allies have been continually at war for a long time now. But as all cosmopolitan dystopia heads will know, these are interventions to safeguard human rights and so on. They're police actions as opposed to wars between antagonists. As the Anglo world system declines, it seems unavoidable that the threat of nuclear war should return to the fore, especially to the extent that the elite of that system continue to view their interests as identical with scientifically enlightened rational vision of the destiny of humankind. Oh, that was a really good comment. Yeah, it's a really um it's a really interesting one. I mean, I've not read the HG Wells, though I was, you know, I'm familiar with it. Um, or I mean I'm you know, I've kind of I know it by reputation. And there is, you know, I mean, there is a long kind of tradition within uh, thinking about international politics that suggests that uh, nuclear weapons necessitate world government. Um and how far, I mean, I and I, you know, I think there is um it seems to me there is kind of a logical connection, you know, um, that there is kind of a logical connection between the two. So that kind of idea that the, I suppose the one difference I would say is that the era of um, that kind of era, the close, that the era of unipolarity of American dominance over the last 30 years as the sole superpower, it has some attributes of world government. Um, the kind of and as well as um, you know, it's not accidental that the form of political hegemony is um, all takes the form of um, a cosmopolitan, enlightened, technocratic elite and all of that. But um, it's not actually a world government, right? Um, that it is actually the kind of the hegemony of a single state, and that inevitably, you know, that hegemony is kind of waned, and that's the situation that we're in now. Um, it's maybe something worth revisiting, actually, because also, I mean, I understand like there's also some writings by Karl Liebknecht actually on this as well, mm. on the question of uh, the possibility of a um, of a kind of weapon that would make um, that would kind of um, resolve all the con resolve all the contradictions of militarism and make socialism uh, politically necessary. And apparently, yeah, like I say, Karl Liebknecht had some kind of speculative um, thoughts on this as well. So I guess it was in the year around the time that mm. both he and H.G. Wells were writing. Makes me think, just a kind of quick final point, it makes me think a bit of uh, Watchmen. I don't know if you've seen, seen this, either of you, but <clears throat> this is essentially one reading of the plot that, and, you know, sort of spoilers, uh, spoiler alert here, but that in a context of like impending potential nuclear war, um, that what will get what will uh, displace this threat of nuclear war? Well, it's uh, something which, and you need something that's going to bring the US and the USSR together. So the anti-hero of the film essentially kind of teleports a big um, a big alien. So everyone has to come together. Um, so it's not a, it's not um, as you were sort of saying, Phil, that there's an, a weapon that has this power, but it's a kind of external threat which um, binds humanity um together and it's it's well worth uh well worth a watch the uh this very long zack schneider film i think well um, and that, that's if that's, uh, people have got yeah. nuclear war on the brain well that's that you know of course that's the hope of uh of green thinkers you know that the threat you know if you can consistently talk up the threat of uh you know annihilation by climate change that that will finally unify humanity but of course we know very well that that is an evasion of politics um and doesn't yeah there's a very there's a very intimate connection between all of these things and post politics, you know, I mean, and that connection, I think, I mean, we talked about it a bit in when we talked about exterminism, it's kind of, you know, the, the post political logic of the popular front kind of souped up to a whole new level. Um, 
all of that, I think, is you know, I mean, there is a kind of a really it would it's really it's a fascinating kind of trope, and I think it is probably worth exploring a bit more if we were given the opportunity. Okay, Hopefully, excellent. without a nuclear winter. What do you mean? Oh, I thought I thought you were saying if we're given the opportunity by Alex. No, if we're given the opportunity <laughs> by by not the world by not, not, by not uh, ceasing to exist. Okay, well, let's hope we don't cease to exist when we're back with more episodes next week and another Alpha Bonus bonus uh, to finish off the year. Maybe one or two. Um, still to finish off the year, we'll see. Um, but thank you again very much uh, for all your questions and comments. Fascinating as usual. Keep them coming. We really enjoy doing these, and we hope you enjoy listening to them. We'll be back soon. Catch you later. Bye bye.